0: Welcome to this edition of the IWICFITrainer.net podcast. Our podcast on what the legalization of recreational marijuana means for fire cause investigation was one of the most popular podcasts ever on CFITrainer.net. Today, we've got a follow-up to that podcast with one of our listeners who's an investigator doing training on this very topic. Vic Masenkoff is an investigator with the Fire Investigation Unit of the Contra Costa County Fire Protection District, which is just east of San Francisco, California. He's worked an increasing number of fires at residential homes, given over to marijuana growing operations, and he's here to give you the benefit of his experience. Thanks for being with us,
1: Vic. You bet, Rod. Thanks for having me join you today.
0: So one of the concerns and, and I guess the, the main concern that you brought up to us after the initial podcast was safety when working these fires at marijuana grow houses and other production facilities. Can you, can you talk about that and, and start out by just giving us an idea of the general safety risks and how these small-scale grow houses work?
1: Sure. These are new drug trends, particularly the way marijuana is now being grown and, produced, and it's being done in a way that we're just not familiar with. And uh, I think most of us in the business of fire investigation are probably familiar with the outdoor marijuana grow operations, you know, that occur in a lot of our national forests and in large outdoor areas. And then we would probably come across some uh, indoor grow operations that were occurring in commercial buildings or very small-scale uh, operations, uh, you know, occurring in someone's garage or closet. But that's, that's changed drastically uh, today, and now uh, a large part of the marijuana production is occurring in indoor uh, grow operations that are uh, where residential homes are being used. Um, part of that is uh, for that reason is uh, the indoor uh, grow operations are pretty much been taken over by uh, Asian organized crime on the West Coast, and uh, they are primarily either renting or buying residences in very innocuous, you know, subdivisions, uh, late model homes. Um, and in places there, you wouldn't even suspect that someone would be converting an entire home into a marijuana growing operation. Uh, in a lot of cases, even the neighbors that live right next door are unaware of what was going on in the in the house next to them. And, uh, and a lot of these grow operations are causing fires for a number of reasons. So, and that's where the fire service gets involved, and uh, that's how we became aware of the many hazards, uh, very significant hazards to first responders uh, as a result of these operations. And uh, there's another, uh, besides the indoor marijuana growing operations now. Uh, and it's taken off like uh, an epidemic across the nation and, of course, started here on the West Coast. Uh, and that is the production of butane hash oil. And uh, there used to be the waste product of these uh, numerous uh, indoor residential grow operations. Uh, used to be the trim or the, um, the uh, leaves uh, of the marijuana plant because nowadays it's all about the buds. So the, the bud is the only part of the plant that's kept. Everything else is considered waste, and even portions of the bud are trimmed during the growing process. And so all that uh, plant material, they used to just throw away. And then they realized that they can take that plant material and process it using uh, very volatile gases uh, as solvents and uh, you know make a uh, marijuana extract that has become very popular with a huge profit margin. So that, in, in a way, led to the other uh, drug trend, that street drug trend, that's posing significant safety hazards to our first responders.
0: So now let's let's talk about fires that are associated with these grow houses and the operations and how they occur. What, what do you commonly see?
1: Well, in regard to the uh, indoor grow operations, uh, these are large-scale, commercial, and somewhat sophisticated operations. Well, what you have is a uh, Some type of an entity, and in in our case, on the West Coast, they're predominantly Asian organized crime syndicates. But in fact, the Mexican drug cartels are starting to look at that side of the business, where they used to predominantly operate large outdoor grow operations. They're now seeing the huge profit margin that the Asian gangs are seeing. They're starting to make some inroads into that market, and that unfortunately may make response to some of these uh, incidents even more dangerous for first responders. But So what we see is that they will uh, acquire a home, uh, usually in the range of 2,500 to 3,000 square foot, and then convert the entire house to a grow operation. Uh, At some point, they'll have a straw buyer. They'll have someone uh, that will uh, make the purchase of the home with funds provided from the syndicate and uh, become the owner on title. And they're usually then just completely divorced from the operation. All they are are the straw buyer. And then an electrician will be brought in to basically rewire the home. And that's where one of the greatest hazards to first responders uh, is created, and that's the hazard of electrocution. And so the entire house will be rewired to power the grow operation. A number of other modifications that pose hazards are made, such as cutting uh, large holes through uh, floor ceiling assemblies to, to run ventilation ducts. Uh, hanging very heavy uh, ventilation and filtering equipment from the ceilings using you know minimal support uh, quite often we see hundred fifty to two hundred pound charcoal uh, canister filter systems with large ventilation fans connected to them uh... suspended from ceilings using just your standard uh... tie-down strap uh... nylon tie-down strap and obviously you expose that to a little bit of heat and it's not going to maintain its integrity and uh, if if someone had someone the uh, 200 pound filter ventilator like that fall on them, it would it would cause serious injury. So that poses another threat. And then most of the windows are are boarded up basically from the inside. In many cases now, to uh, provide security to the grow operation from other crooks who may try to basically uh, pull off a dope rip, uh, they're now putting metal security bars on the insides of the windows. So from the street. Uh, all you see are the blinds are drawn and, uh, you know, uh, you can't see in the windows, and you have no idea that the windows are actually boarded from the inside and then can in many cases have metal security bars installed on the inside. So that obviously poses a great risk to our first responders as our firefighters are going into these conditions. It's burning. Visibility is extremely low. Uh, they're crawling on hands and knees performing their initial uh, search for rescue uh... so they run the risk of entangling with all the equipment and the wiring uh... the risk of falling through these holes in places where they are not expected and then if, should every their, an emergency occur inside uh, quite often the, the the best emergency route for our firefighters is out the nearest window and of course if they're you know, barred with security bars on the inside that's a extreme hazard definitely a hazard for our first responders but one thing as fire investigators both on the public and private side Uh, We assume that, well, we usually get there hours, days, maybe even months sometimes uh, to the scene to investigate the fire. And we assume that the first responders, whether they were law enforcement, uh, EMS, or fire, identified all the hazards and mitigated them. And in the case of uh, these uh, residential marijuana grows and of the uh, butane hash oil labs that are often co-located at the grows, Um, That is quite often uh, not the case. We are still providing training to first responders throughout our state in California, and uh, law enforcement, fire, and EMS are still somewhat unaware of this trend and exactly what the signs and symptoms are uh, to identify uh, that you have either a, a grow operation where the power's been bypassed or... Uh, butane hash oil lab. So that's one of the greatest dangers is not realizing what the potential hazard is, what type of operation you have. And and uh, it's understandable. You know, most, this is a respectable profession and, and most people in the fire investigation business really don't keep up on the current street drug trends, but the newer trends, and a lot of it's because of the internet, uh, there are so many new trends developing and they spread so quickly that uh, by the time we figure out one, there's a new one on the horizon. And the last uh, illegal drug trend that posed a serious threat to first responders and investigators was the, the old traditional methamphetamine lab, which is, uh, for different reasons, become a thing of the past. But um, everyone pretty much was aware if, if the fire or the incident involved a methamphetamine lab, it was somewhat obvious and first responders uh, would always have mitigated that issue before an investigator had to get involved in the scene. But that's not the case in in these situations. One of the greatest hazards, again, is electrocution in regards to these indoor marijuana grows, and that's because in most cases the utility services, the electrical utilities, have been bypassed, and they'll be bypassed uh, between the uh, incoming service and the meter utility meter. And uh, a lot of these residential growth are occurring in, you know, late model era homes where the utility service is, uh, comes in underground. And it typically comes in to the uh, garage uh, on from underground and inside the one of the garage walls to the uh, utility uh, service meter and then to the distribution panel. Well, in most of these growths, uh they will bypass or connect the bypass to power their grow in that area in the wall of the garage between where the utility service comes in and the meter. And that, in fact, is quite often where uh, a failure occurs and the cause of the fire could be found. But they will almost always re-sheetrock or recover the wall where they make the bypass. And if the first responders aren't looking for that, uh, they're assuming that once they've turned off the main breaker at the panel, that the, the home is de-energized, and then that's not the case. And I've witnessed several cases where uh, our first responders, our firefighters, have suffered, uh, luckily, minor electrical shocks because of this fact. And so our district now has a policy of uh, not allowing a offensive fire attack, uh, no uh, entry into a burning structure if there's any indication that there is a grow operation until the utility company, in our case PG&E, Arise at the scene and disconnect the power either at the pole, if it's an above-ground service, or in the street, if it's an underground service. And that's extremely important if uh, anyone arrives uh, to a fire scene where uh, there's any indication that there was a grow operation. The assumption should be made that there was a power bypass. And the only way to to make that building safe uh, power-wise is to disconnect the utility service. And even then, uh, we can't make the assumption there wasn't an alternate uh, source of power. So one of the primary ways to, to deal with that, that hazard is to make sure before uh, any activities occur in that building is that their tests are made to make ensure that the building is de-energized. And that's extremely important for investigators, uh, particularly on the private side. They may uh, arrive to a fire scene, like I said, days, weeks, maybe months uh, down the road and uh... first responders may have missed completely that there was a utility power bypass and even with the outside the breaker turned off all the circuit breakers on the distribution panel off the electrical uh... system in that building may still be energized so it's extremely important to first check for a bypass and if there's any indication of a bypass or a grow operation have the utilities disconnected at the street but also ultimately to always test the circuits before uh, coming uh, in contact with them or working near them. There are two other major hazards in the grow operation. We've had firefighters and law enforcement uh, first responders killed by electrocution, both in the United States and Canada, at, at these grows. So uh, that's, I think that's the number one hazard. Um, but there are two other very significant hazards, and, and one is the, ha- uh, the hazard of mold. There are a number of mold spores. Uh, that uh, are commonly found in these indoor grows. In fact, they affect the quality of the grow, so in in some cases the the grower may try to mitigate those molds, but there's always the potential that they are present. And I had no idea until I did some research and and, uh, attended training myself that some of these molds are highly carcinogenic. Some of them are... uh, consider a human pathogens and can cause permanent, very serious respiratory tract damage uh, if uh, they're inhaled. And they can be present at these grows. So resp- wearing, uh, using respiratory protection and ventilating the structure very well before anyone enters to do any work is extremely important. Uh, one of the other uh, hazards are chemical hazards. There are a number of fertilizers, uh, pesticides, Uh, fungicides that are used in the grow operation. And, again, you're working indoors, so uh, the fumes and and these products are all confined in an indoor space. And, again, can be very hazardous. And, uh, again, in this case, full uh, personal protective equipment is, is a must, and respiratory protection and ventilation. Very important to ventilate the structure prior to doing any work in it. And one of the key ways to mitigate the butane hash oil uh, hazard, again, is full protective uh, personal protective equipment, but uh, elimination of ignition sources. So if there's a scene that has any uh, of the signs and symptoms of butane hash oil uh, operation, it's extremely important to get the uh, utilities turned off. And again, the gas turned off and the uh... electrical utilities turned off in the street it's not enough to assume that turning the main breaker off um, and thereby we're eliminating most of the potential ignition sources Um and then the next step is to uh... ventilate the structure we've got to get those uh... butane potential butane vapors dissipated before anybody enters the structure and and then again to be extremely careful of uh... introducing any Ignition sources. We teach law enforcement that obviously firearms, uh, tasers, um, radios, and most law enforcement radios are not intrinsically safe. Uh, luckily, uh, more and more fire service uh, portable radios are intrinsically safe these days, but all those can introduce uh, an ignition source because something as simple as a, a static discharge can ignite butane vapors.
0: I got to tell you, Vic. I <laughs> When you started describing this and started going through the details of it, even though I had some familiarity with the topic, I started thinking, man, this is like a house of horrors combined with a booby trap for firefighters. And then it just continues on through into the investigation. I'm also wondering, you know, you, you talked about a straw buyer um, and I get that. I mean, I can imagine that person coming in, making the buy. Everything seems normal. Have these places been identified? I mean, I can imagine it would be difficult to have, I don't know, I, is it a straw live-in person, you know, uh, somebody who's making it look like the house is occupied?
1: No, and that's, and that's uh, what sometimes surprises me is how um, oblivious neighbors can be to what's going on right next door. Um, what happens is no one actually lives there, but there, there will be a caretaker, caretaker, in essence, assigned to maintain the grow operation. And they'll typically show up uh, just several times a week. Um, they'll raise the garage door, typically drive right in, close the garage door, and then uh, and tend to the grow. And they may stay overnight, uh, but they're they're not living there, and they're they're usually responsible for tending several grow operations. So they move from location to location. Um, and you know, as organized crime would have it, they're they're very good at maintaining separation. So the straw buyer typically doesn't know, Anyone else in the operation? The electrician uh, who is sent to wire these places to uh, to put in the hot tap, to bypass the utilities, to distribute the wiring. Which there's there's very the amount of wiring in, in these grow operations is is amazing. Typically, you know uh, that average uh, size residential grow uh, can have 80 to 100 1,000 watt uh, sodium high pressure growing lights installed in the house. Uh, and each each individual light has its own transformer, um, and you know when we've uh, on some of these cases where we've added up the potential uh, draw, um, it's it's between four to six hundred amps uh, when everything is turned on, and that's an amazing amount of of current to draw through a residential service that's uh, originally designed usually for a maximum of two hundred amps.
0: Yeah, that's what I was just thinking is like, you know, that's, that's the equivalent of four houses. And and it brings up another point to me is that I'm guessing they're putting in, you know, you call it a bypass. I'm thinking about a large junction. Um, and is that, is there any way that that's tipping off the electrical companies or?
1: I mean, one of these, uh, residential grow operations in that size of house, it typically they'll put in a three stage grow so that, um, they'll be able to harvest three times a year. Uh, They'll typically uh, bring in a million to a million and a half dollars per year per house. So the cost of the utilities, I don't think is a concern of them. Uh, The reason they bypass utilities is to stay off the radar.
0: Well, that's what I meant. I was wondering how they're staying off the radar. I guess they're keeping enough power showing up on the meter?
1: Exactly. In the past, uh, they would completely bypass the utility service, and so that became a, a red flag, and so now a uh, what appears to be a normal amount of residential usage is allowed to go through the meter, and then uh, the majority of the, the the electricity, you know, is bypassed to supply the grow.
0: They got smarter. I get it. Okay, so you've talked about uh, quite a few things related. You know, first of all, thanks for again for uh, bringing up the fact that it's not just plant trimmings
1: anymore. It comes with the evolution of marijuana. I, you know, back in our day, you know, when you bought your, your marijuana, uh, you know, you bought a, a lid or an ounce for, I don't know, $20, 30 and, and that was primary leaf material, and then there was the old, the classic seeds and stems that were in there. And the THC uh, content, THC is that active uh, part of the marijuana plant that creates the high or the alleged medicinal benefit and those things. That The THC content was like two to three percent. And then over the years, it it, uh, evolved, you know, through uh, hybrids and different techniques. You know, it became all about the bud of the plant. And then the THC content in bud um, averages about 25 percent. And then came along the process of extracting the THC uh, from the plant material uh, using a solvent and and that's commonly referred to as butane hash oil or butane honey oil, the THC content in that extract can reach 90%. And that is potent, and that is something people uh, just aren't used to. And some of the chronic uh, marijuana consumers will argue that we're... Exaggerating the effects of this form of extract, marijuana extract, but you know these are folks that are smoking four or five times a day, and so they they develop somewhat of a tolerance. But for your average consumer or person who's not used to to uh, you know ingesting marijuana, uh, you start getting over 30% THC content, and you start having hallucinogenic effects. And uh, hospitals now are starting to see, particularly our burn units, and and that's a whole nother impact that this drug trend has
0: had that's what i wanted to get to and, and before we do that um yeah. i want to make sure i'm not we're not missing any of these other points that we discussed we, we talked about uh electric electrical you know jury rigging or jerry rigging um overloaded grow lights electrocution uh just from the unexpected wiring systems exposed wiring you had mentioned I, i'm i not sure when we talked about it before but just slips and falls from equipment
1: absolutely absolutely Particularly for our first responders, but again, um, as investigators coming in after the fact, we can't assume that hidden under that pile of debris on the second floor or uh, working on the first floor with a uh, second floor above us that uh, there aren't large openings, you know, maybe hidden by fire debris or other items where we might walk or, or be working below. Uh, where there there might be large openings in these areas where we wouldn't expect. So, in the middle of a floor, there might be a, a layer of fire debris, and we're going to walk across it on the second story. Um, there could very well be a a two to three foot hole in that in the middle of that area where a ventilation duct used to go as part of the grow. So, we we have to learn to expect these things. And yes, uh, the amount of wiring and uh, ventilation and uh, lighting equipment and irrigation equipment, um, the, the the danger of entanglement and and slips, falls, and equipment uh, grow equipment you know dropping on a investigator or a first responder. Those are all hazards that are that they're imminent. I,
0: I'm I'm also thinking you know about other risks and other uh, things that are evolving because of. Butane. And when we spoke about that, I thought there were some interesting things about that. Um, Not only what you're doing, you know, to create more safety, but at the same time, um, efforts that are being taken to reduce uh, the number of these kind of places that are happening, uh, you know, the number of, of, shall we say, plants uh, or production facilities. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: The use of butane in in the butane honey oil process is is one of my greatest concerns. And, you know, an example of how, how dangerous this process is is the fact that our burn centers, and now across the nation, you know, first the West Coast was impacted, and burn units are a very limited critical resource Uh, one of the largest burn units in northern california is a twelve bed unit and they are now reporting for the last two years there are times when seventy five percent of those beds are being used by butane hash oil lab uh, burn victims and uh, the burns that that, uh, these people suffer are usually uh, cover a very high percentage of body surface area and are much deeper burns than your typical uh, accidental burns. burn treatment community is now struggling with this. In fact, the American Burn Association has decided that next year's uh, Burn Prevention Week theme will be uh, addressing butane ash oil lab burns. And um, at their last national convention in Chicago, the East Coast burn units were starting to say, look, we're starting to see these types of burns, and and do you guys know anything about them? and then, then it became apparent that it has spread across the nation and, and points in between. So very hazardous. Um, and again, it's one of those drug trends that we, as first responders, particularly in the fire investigation side, both public and private, um, we don't expect that we need to keep up on current uh, street drug trends. But that's one of the things I think is very important. Uh, there are certain ones, but uh, in particularly butane hash oil production, that uh, pose a significant threat to investigators and first responders and are causing many, many fires and explosions uh, and deaths and and serious burn injuries. So fire investigators will be involved in these types of cases and uh, in many instances these are criminal offenses, these are criminal fires. In some cases the recklessness uh, rises to the level where case laws uh, shows that we should actually be charging arson versus a negligent or reckless uh... causing of a fire statute uh... at the very least we should be looking at these cases and and uh, investigating them as a criminal act uh... At, at, at the very least again as a reckless or negligently caused fire and in many cases that level of negligence or recklessness rises to uh, the level of arse, arson which usually has a malicious or uh, uh, intentional act but uh... And so what I encourage uh, folks to do is to get out there on their own, attend there are classes being given to familiarize investigators and first responders with the process. Um, We don't often on the fire side feel we need to become intimately familiar with drug trends, how drugs are manufactured, purchased, used. But in this case, uh, in order to be able to testify in court as an expert to a fire that's been caused uh, as a result of this process, it's really important to know uh, where the process originated, you know, and how it's actually made, how the honey oil is made, how it's used, distributed, in order to qualify in court as an expert to these labs as the fire cause.
0: It's interesting, um, as as we talked about this, and, and as I think back about it, a lot of it relates to the first responder, you know, at first blush, um, you know, walking into this crazy house that's been completely altered with electrical wires and blocked windows and potential falls and holes in the walls. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, and then I start thinking about, okay, a fire investigator. And you said, you know, in some of these cases, it might be a long period of time before a fire investigator even gets in there. Um, can you talk about the challenges of investigating that fire? I'm thinking about the challenges of the fire investigation beyond, uh, A a typical investigation, you know, because documentation and all the things that you're talking about, it seems like there'd be a lot of areas of law that would be gray. Um, It seems like finding the cause of the fire is one thing. Dealing with the cause of the fire in this context seems very different. Am I am I out there with this question?
1: No, and, and and that is uh, that's a dilemma that fire investigators on the public side deal with all the time, but particularly on, on the private side, because their uh, their mission, as, as, if you will, is to uh, conduct an investigation as to do any civil implications uh, and not to conduct a, a criminal investigation. Now, establishing negligence or or, or recklessness can be uh, part of the civil considerations, but. But it's important for uh, investigators on the private side to the science to look for it that, may, that would indicate that you may have had a butane hash oil operation here. And I just, and I just want to point out they're, they're not always located at the site of a grow operation. In fact, in most cases, they're separate. But we are finding more often that they're co-located because the people conducting the grow now take the waste plant material and... Convert it to another profitable item, but in most cases they're they're separate. So you may go into a house where there was a uh, a burn injury, might have been minor, might have been significant, uh, might have had no uh, uh, EMS or law enforcement or fire response at all, and but a flash fire occurred. There was some damage. Maybe the person was a renter. Uh, maybe they're an owner. But in any case, now as a private fire investigator, you're you've been sent assigned to investigate the fire, and uh, Typically, and and I've had it happen to me. The the involved party will say, "Well, I was I was frying oil uh, on the stove. The oil caught fire, and and I got burned. I tried to move it. And and you might have a fire that you know damaged some uh, kitchen cabinets and and counters in the immediate area. And what I found in some of these cases uh, was that, and it's it's not untypical that what they were doing is they were making the butane hash oil." In the presence of an ignition source, and quite often they're doing it on the stove. They're not rocket scientists, and uh, and that's where the flash fire, uh, where the butane vapors ignite. And you know, if you didn't know, or there weren't signs that they were they were making butane hash, oil, you may accept the for the, the involved person's account of what happened. So wow. it, it's just as important for them to uh, identify those uh, those things. And But the problem is, again, the big problem is this use of butane. The honey oil process is very basic. Um, you basically take the waste marijuana plant material. You might have to grind it up a little. You put it into, uh, commonly with use, our glass tubes or PVC pipe, two to three inches in diameter. There's a cap on each end. Uh, one end is either drilled out or a... Uh, Quite often, uh, coffee maker filters are attached with rubber bands or stainless steel clamp on the end. And on the other end, there's one hole in the cap, and that's where you introduce the butane. The source of the butane in most of these operations are, uh, they call it refined butane, and you can buy it at your local uh, mom-and-pop stop-and-rob little grocery store or mini-mart online at Amazon uh Sears and Roebuck website sells it. it. It just drives me crazy that it's so available and we're trying to work with the Consumer Product Safety Commission now to regulate uh this product, but it's legal to sell, it's legal to possess, uh in any amount because of it the individual packaging, the size of it and the amount of the product is unregulated. And these are little three hundred milliliter cans, about thirteen ounces of butane. When you look at the M S D S sheets, it's actually a, a mixture of uh N butane uh... isopropane and uh... regular propane that is what's used as the solvent you basically just put the nozzle of that canister they're sold as uh... lighter refills but that's never what they're used for and uh... so you just insert the nozzle of that can into the end of the tube containing the plant material and you run the gas through the plant material butane and this is the problem with butane it's very volatile it has a flash point of minus seventy six f and the refined butane um, the odorants like ethyl mercaptan have been removed, so it's odorless and clear. You don't detect it when it's out there in it's vapor form. It has an expansion ratio of about 288 to one, and more importantly, the specific gravity is a little over two, which makes it obviously heavier than air. So these vapors, uh, and with its volatility, it's immediately converting to vapor as it comes through, out of the can, and it's filling the area where the operation is taking place with clear, odorless, easily ignitable butane vapor that settles and travels and fills the area until it reaches an ignition uh, source. So that's a huge problem. And it's got a fair, fairly wide flammable range of one8 to 8.4%. Everybody's doing it. You know, you can go on the internet and learn how to do it. It's very simple. So that's, that's how it's done in its most basic form. And then the product, you know, comes out the other end as a liquid, but again, it's immediately the butane's coming off as a vapor. And so they just let it drop into what's typically a Pyrex dish, and they allow it to sit and uh, allow the vapors to uh, continue to vapor off, and it leaves you this kind of a gooey, golden-colored uh, product, which is the, the marijuana extract, which then they just most commonly smoke, but it can be uh, ingested also through edibles. But it's most commonly smoked, and it's so potent. They call it dabbing because all it takes is a little dab, um, to smoke and uh, long-lasting, uh, often uh, seven to eight hour long, uh, very intense high. But so there, there they are. They're just filling the area they're in with this flammable butane vapor, and that's that's the the smaller version of the process. So some people decide, well, I want to make more for myself, and I want to sell some, and then you have commercial scale operations. Even the commercial scale operations tend to use the individual three hundred milliliter canisters. So. You can have a scene that has thousands of these canisters uh, where they're processing uh, the marijuana. Uh, so it's extremely dangerous. And then there are also closed-loop systems where uh, bulk butane is loaded into large stainless steel uh, containers uh, where it's uh, a closed-loop system where the butane vapors are recovered and then reintroduced into the plant material to extract the uh the THC, and in these systems, one closed-loop system can, can use 10 to 15 pounds of butane. They're all subject to leak. Uh, again, these aren't scientific processes. These aren't rocket scientists uh, operating the system, so uh, they tout closed-loop systems as being safe, but there is no safe way to produce butane honey oil. And so the problem is that these vapors can lingle, they can settle uh, uh, in pockets, in uh, even in outdoor areas, actually, um, much less inside a structure. They can be present when first responders arrive. And imagine that, uh, you know, if there's an active butane honey oil lab uh, with these vapors in the structure and they are right on the edge of the flammable range or they're... Uh, nearby or haven't reached an ignition source and first responders come in that front door and they disturb the air or they introduce an ignition source there could be a disastrous explosion and, and the, the power of these butane vapor explosions is something most people can't appreciate but uh, we've responded to several Instances where entire condominiums basically disintegrated from the explosive force of the butane vapors igniting. Them. Butane vapors, you know, with the expansion rate and the additional expansion rate of once they're ignited, the butane vapor, the ignited butane vapor from one 300 milliliter canister can fill a 1400 square foot area. So imagine if you're confining that amount of ignited vapor into a, a single room, uh, a utility room, a garage. Some people have been doing it in vehicles. Um, the, the explosive force is, is immense.
0: I, I just keep thinking about uh, some of the pictures that I've seen, and I was thinking, you know, sometimes you must think you're walking in on a gas explosion or, or something else. I, I can't imagine what it's like.
1: Right. Well, we've had instances where people asked, you know, what, what kind of bomb was it that caused it? And we explained, oh, well, there wasn't a bomb. It was the ignition of butane vapors. And so, you know, again, uh, even once the fire investigator gets there, we can't assume that that hazard's been mitigated. I've come to a number of scenes, hours after the fact, sometimes days, where butane canisters uh, were left behind, where the uh, butane honey oil product itself uh, was in places where it was undiscovered, and because that product itself will continue to give off butane vapors for a period of time after it's been made. And again, those, those vapors can collect. We're starting to see more and more explosions and fires in uh, refrigerators because uh, one por- process of uh, refining the butane honey oil, is to co- uh, it's called winterization, is to put it in the freezer, typically in a mason jar, with just a coffee filter uh, wrapped around the, the mouth of the jar so it's open to vapors and place it in, in the refrigerator um, in a... Uh, They recommend either using Everclear or um, um, high-percentage isopropyl alcohol. And, you know, isopropyl alcohol vapors uh, have uh, characteristics very similar to that of butane vapors. And so what's happening is these vapors are escaping (laughs) uh, out of the uh, freezer and reaching an ignition source. And I've had a number of uh, investigators call me uh, wondering, what what caused this? And and some of them have attended the training, and called and says, you know, I had one of these. I knew what it was, and and, and that's important. You know, this training uh, we've been giving it for at least a year now in California, we still have first responders in uh, in classes come up to us and go, I had no idea, and but they're saying now that I know this information, I realize I've been to these incident one of these incidents and didn't realize what we had.
0: You know, it's interesting. That brings up two points. You know, what's been the reaction of the training, and and what are the things that you want our listeners to leave with? You know, a couple of the key points that, that you'd like to drive forward.
1: Well, I, I, I strongly encourage uh, investigators to go out and find their training locally or on the Internet that, that goes more in-depth in, into these processes and their hazards and, and how they the implications for fire investigations um, you know today's podcast i hope gives them some level of awareness to to the problem uh, there's a lot more information out there and and i would hope that it's a reminder that there are certain things that we would never expect that we would have to stay up on for instance drug trends street drug trends but in the fire investigation field, you know, if, if these are potential causes of fires, it's something we do have to become intimately familiar with. And again, and not to uh, rely on the fact that some other first responder, whether law enforcement, fire, or EMS, was there before us, because I uh, had a recent incident. Uh, a student in one of my classes uh, responded, was called out as the duty fire investigator for an explosion and fire in a residence. The law enforcement jurisdiction had already arrived. It was a, a fully involved uh, residence. They assumed, well, it's a fire, you know. And once traffic control and everything was taken care of, they left the scene. And once our the duty fire investigator got there, he saw the signs right away of a commercial-scale butane hash oil operation sure. and made the call and said, you know, law enforcement, you need to come back here. And it turned out to be, you know, a major criminal case in which a a toddler, you know, was almost killed uh, due to the fire and explosion. And it did originate in the refrigerator, part of that winterization process. So I think that's a good example of why we can't assume that, well, if it was a drug lab, the cops would have figured it out when they got here before us. Not the case with these new and emerging trends. So we just have to take the time to educate ourselves and then, then, you know, pass that information on to our, our peers and our coworkers so that we're all aware of the potential
0: hazards. I'm really grateful for your time. And I know uh, the folks at the IWI and and all the people who listen uh, really appreciate you sharing what seems to be some pretty critical safety and investigative procedure information. And I I also want to say that I'm grateful that you reached out and contacted us uh, to be part of this podcast and and get the word out. So thank you very much, Vic. It's
1: absolutely my pleasure.
0: Now for the IWI news. The uh, IWAI folks are on the road right now. They're going to several different shows and they're talking about membership. If you get a chance when you're at any of the shows as they wrap up for the fall, please uh, stop by the IWI booth, pick up a membership application. There's several offers that are going to be going on that are a really good deal. So check in with them and find out about joining the IWAI International. It is with great sorrow that the IWI and many throughout the fire investigation and fire service world mourn the loss of a brother from South Africa. We lost Kim Yates a couple weeks ago, and he was a great spirit and a well known and loved investigator. We are greatly saddened by the loss of Kim Yates, and there are a couple of sweet tributes to him at firearson.com, written by his close friend and business partner, Andre De Beer, and another dear friend, Bob Toth. Please join all of us in the fire community as we remember Kim. For CFITrainer.net and the IAAI, I'm Rod Ammon.